We're going to continue our sermon series on work as worship this morning. And uh, before I do, I want to say thank you to all of you who are, are here today, but also especially want to say thank you to our guests or are maybe here for the first time. We welcome you. And I do think we have someone that probably came the furthest this morning than anybody else, all the way from Albania. And uh, she um, taught in Sunday school. Cedarilla is with us from Albania. And she, yeah, right there. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, she, she shared in uh, Jonathan's Sunday school class this morning. And then she will be with our folks at Lunch and Learn on Wednesday. So we are glad that you're here with us today. Um, and speaking of work, we had a work day yesterday here in the church and then over at our property next door. And we had some folks who came and worked yesterday. That's always a fun thing to work beside people. And um, so I want to thank those. So if you if you helped yesterday, would you just kind of hold your hand up? I want to recognize you and say thank you. I see some of our folks over there. So thank you all very much for helping us out yesterday. We appreciate you. Yeah. <clears throat> So I want to ask you a question this morning. Can you remember a major motivation for you to work in your life at some point? Now, obviously, we are motivated to pay bills, right, <laughs> and do those kind of things. But maybe there was a time in your life where I thought about there was something I wanted as a kid, and mom and dad said, absolutely not. But if you want that, you got to work for it. You ever had that happen to you? So there were times where we say, you know what, yeah, I know mom and dad aren't going to pay for it. I'm going to have to work for this. And, and that kind of motivated you to go out and do odd jobs or, or do all these things so you could get the money to get what you wanted. Maybe as a kid or a teenager, um, there was something you wanted. Or, or maybe working extra long or extra hard when you were motivated by a certain someone to maybe get them a ring and you did a lot of extra stuff motivating you to do that and so we all have to work in life earning a living we understand that but sometimes there's something more than we're working for but the question I want to ask today is is what happens when our motivation for working is no longer there we don't want to maybe work not necessarily at all anymore but where I'm working what I'm doing Used to be a motivation when I first started, but now it's just not there anymore. It's not the same anymore. What if what or who we're working for is not no longer worth it to you? Ever thought about that? So it's difficult to deal with when you're at a point in life. Maybe you've worked your way up and you've hit a ceiling at your job and you're not going to go any further. And it's just it's something, hey, you know what, I don't, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not motivated to go into work anymore it's it's hard to do that that's a tough place to be and it's a tough place to get out of that isn't it and so we've been exploring this work as worship and i think this concept that our work our everyday work is really an act of worship we worship god by how we what we do every day it is an offering to god and that may be a kind of an odd concept to some of us because we have boxes we live in don't we like right now we're in the church box right that's what we do on sunday morning we come and get in our church box and then we leave here and we get in another box like watching the falcons box okay or whatever or the braves and then we get on monday through friday in our work box and we we, we do that so we both but when Christ calls us to follow him and to surrender our lives to him, that box means that Jesus is in all our boxes, right? He's in every part of our life. He wants to motivate us. He wants us to, uh, to show who he is and his character in every aspect of our life. And that's sometimes a new concept when it comes to certain areas of our life. And probably the worship part may be harder for us to process than the work part. Because we know what work is, and some of us are very diligent. We're very responsible about our work and what we do every day. We, we get up and we go, and man, we work hard, and we, we do a good job with that. 
And we sometimes allow work to consume us. It can become a form of worship. But does that worship of our work really honor God or is it honoring to somebody else like me or a bottom line or something where somebody we're trying to impress to get ahead? Does it, does it have a, a worship of me, myself, or is it for really God? So how do we go about having a proper worship of God with our work? And that's something we want to explore in this series. Well, today I want us to look at a, a situation where somebody was very motivated to work for quite a while, and his name was Jacob. This is a character from the Old Testament. I don't want to assume everybody's heard of Jacob, but he's one of the most fascinating characters in the Bible to me, just because there's a lot about him. And so I want to look uh, look at him. We're going to go to Genesis 29, but I'm going to give you just a little background of Jacob. Jacob's um, grandfather was Abraham, and he had a twin brother named Esau, and uh, Jacob and Esau's parents were Isaac and Rebekah. Um, and through a series of dysfunctional family maneuverings, and, and let me tell you, this was a very dysfunctional family. And as I see this, I go, I can't believe this is in the Bible. You'd think you'd want to clean that up because God used that family. But nope, God didn't clean it up at all. He showed us all the good, the bad, and the ugly of this family and what they did. So Rebecca really had a favorite son, and that was Jacob. And Isaac had a favorite son, and that was Esau. And they played favorites, and it caused dysfunction in their family. And the Bible lets us know what happened through all of that. But basically, what we do know is um, Jacob was actually the younger son. I know they're twins, but Esau was born, came out first, so he was the older son. And we know in the Jewish culture, older sons get more things as the oldest son. And uh, Esau was supposed to get the blessing as the older, but at, through a maneuvering of, of things by his mother and Jacob, they actually stole the blessing that Esau was supposed to get, and Jacob got it while the dad was on his deathbed, and they made, did these little tricks. I want y'all to read that. I'm not making this up. Go in to read it, and it's pretty fascinating. But after this happened, Esau comes in to get his blessing, and he realized, my brother stole that from me. He maneuvered something with my mom, and they took my blessing, and he's devastated. And all of a sudden, he says, I want to kill my brother. And mom and dad know this, and they go, you got to get out of town. Your brother wants to kill you. So mom and dad say, um, Rebecca goes, look, you've got to go to my uncle Laban and you need to go to your uncle's house and just kind of hang out there a while and hopefully you'll get a wife there because your brother has been going outside of the Israelite community to get a wife and we want you to get an Israelite wife, so please go. So he leaves and he has motivation to work when he gets to his uncle's house. So we're going to pick up there in Genesis 29 and start in verse 13. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and he kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. And after Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob, listen to this. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. That's motivation, isn't it? Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, 
My time is completed. I want to make love to her. See, this is in the Bible. King James kind of cleans it up a little bit, but the NIV just goes right there to it, right? That's in the Bible? Yep, sure is. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as an attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. So finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Can you, you can't make this up. I mean, is this a dysfunctional family or what? And so I can't even imagine a, a father-in-law doing something like this to his son-in-law. But the dysfunction in this family didn't just start with Jacob's mother, Rebecca. Apparently, this runs in the family, this scheming. And uh, this was a scheming family. I mean, Jacob was a schemer. His mom was a schemer. And obviously, his uncle's a schemer. Y'all got any schemers in your family? Okay, I think we probably all do, you know. And of course, it's not us, right? It's everybody else in the family. But Jacob has this motivation because he loves Rachel. And he's met his match as a schemer with his father-in-law. In the first seven years, as we read, it says it seemed like only a few days because of his love for Rachel. It just seemed very short to him. And that's motivation. So Jacob agrees to work for another seven years. You know so how matter-of-fact Laban says, that. Oh, we have a custom here. Forgot to tell you about that. So just work another seven years. That's not a light thing, is it? You feel like you've, he was deceived. So we realize that you can do the math, and Jacob worked 14 years for Laban to have these two wives. And at first, there was this strong motivation for work for this season. But then that motivation ended. He's worked 14 years. He felt like he's been deceived during this time, and he earned and obtained what he had once been so motivated to obtain, and that was Rachel. But after obtaining her as his wife and another wife, Leah, now he's starting to have children He's still working for this same scheming boss, his father-in-law. And he's ready to move on. I said, I don't want to work for this guy anymore. I want to go out on my own. I want to make my living for me and my family. And I don't want to work for him anymore. I want to go out, take my wife and my kids and move on. But Laban talks Jacob into staying. And the two schemers come together and say, we got a new business deal. And it has to do with their herds and how they're going to... Um, uh, make these herds. And it's kind of interesting because both of them think that they're out scheming the other one with this new business deal they have. They go, oh yeah, I've got him. I've got him. He, he agreed to this and I'm the one that's going to win. I know I got him. He thinks he's going to win this, but no, I'm going to win. And it's very interesting. So Jacob stays another six years. But the interesting thing about this is God is sovereign and God is sovereign. He continues to bless Jacob. And it's not because Jacob's really a great person. And it's not because Jacob is a good businessman. And it's not because Jacob is a good animal breeder like he thinks he is with his schemes. But it's because God has always had a plan and Jacob was part of that. Jacob was part of that and God knew. This awkward family business goes on for six more years. And Jacob, again, is motivated by his scheme of how he's going to breed the animals to get ahead and, and grow this large livestock, this large herd of livestock. But again, his motivation is lost during the sixth year. And the Lord actually speaks to him and says, you can leave now. 
I want you to leave and go back. Now, if you go back a few chapters, we have a famous encounter that Jacob has called the Stairway to Heaven. And I know that was a Led Zeppelin song, but it was in the Bible before Led Zeppelin wrote that song. But anyway, it's a fascinating thing because God tells Jacob, I am going to bless. I made a promise to your grandfather Abraham, and you're part of that promise, and you are going to be part of what I'm going to do in the world. And he promised him that. So Jacob knows this in the back of his head, but God speaks to him and says, I want you to leave now. In this six year, you've been there 20 years. So Jacob gets his flocks and his herds and his wives and his children, and he just gets up and leaves. The problem is he doesn't tell his father-in-law. While he's out, he just goes and takes off. So he gets a three-day start, but Laban finds out and takes seven days, and he eventually catches up with him. And, of course, he's upset and goes, Why would you leave and not tell me? And we're going to read what the reply is from Jacob, looking at Genesis 31, verses 38 through 42. So he's asking, I can't believe you would do this to me. And Jacob says this, I have been with you for 20 years, seven for one wife, seven for the other, and now these six years. Your sheep and your goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself, and you demanded payment from me whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night, and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the, fa- if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. Now, what he's referring to there, last night he rebuked you, is Laban got a message from God that says, Jacob's going to leave. I've told him to leave, and you got to let him go. And don't say much to him about it. And so he understands. So what we see in Jacob through the pages of the Bible, and it goes on, it's fascinating a character in the Bible, is that God is working on Jacob's heart. He's working on his character. He's working on his motivation for why he works, for why he does things, his relationship and the worship of God the Father because how he reacts to God is how a lot of people see God and God's working on that. God had been a blessing to his work for a reason. It wasn't because Jacob had such a great work ethic, which he did, and because he had such clever schemes, which he did, but it was because God had placed him in a position to reflect the character of God to other people. So God was a blessing to Jacob, but he wanted Jacob to be a blessing to other people and reflect who God was. And Jacob would be a key participant in the plan of salvation that would come to the world because we know that the 12 sons that God gave Jacob through all of these wives and and their handmaidens and all this, there were 12 sons and those became what? The 12 tribes of Israel. So God was working behind the scenes. He goes, you can do all that crazy dysfunctional family stuff you want, but when I have a plan, I'm going to make it work. No matter how much you try to screw it up, I'm going to make it work because I'm God and I'm sovereign. So what do we learn about Jacob? about our work as worship? Well, I think there's several things. One, we know that Jacob was motivated out of fear and real danger to leave his family where he had been his whole life and go somewhere else to his uncle's uh, homeland. And sometimes in life, we're motivated to make a move in our lives, in our work or our career, out of fear or danger. And sometimes it involves 
a dysfunctional family and we just want to get out of there. Maybe it's a dysfunctional workplace and we just want to get out of there and we leave out of fear. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes that's a necessary ending that we have to make in our lives. And Jacob was necessary for him to do that. And sometimes that can happen to us. But once there, Jacob was motivated to get Rachel as his wife. He was already motivated out of fear, but now he has this beautiful woman that he is in love with, and now he's motivated to work for that. And we too can be motivated by, the, by a love or a relationship to work and even endure a difficult work environment for the sake of the relationship. It may be a romantic thing, but it may also be a family business. And I'm going to stay in this business, and I'm going to endure this because I, I love my family, and this is our business and those kind of things. So we understand how that can be sometimes. But once Jacob received Rachel as his wife after those 14 years and Leah, he was ready to move back to his own home, and we, were, we can understand that. He was no longer motivated to work for Laban anymore. Hard to believe, huh, with that kind of guy as your boss. We can also become unmotivated in our workplace because we have obtained a, a goal or a milestone. Like I said earlier, we may have reached a ceiling where I'm not going to go any further in this business, but I want something more. I feel like God's called me to something more. And so we may start to look elsewhere for new motivation. And this is especially true if we have a boss or an employer that we believe does not treat us fairly or has a pattern of a lack of integrity. Who wants to stay there? And how do we deal with that? Because if I leave here, i got to have another job because i still got to pay bills. So I have to be careful how I navigate that. Some of you have been there before. But notice that Jacob, even after he's been deceived by Laban at every turn, he still worked hard and he still did the right things to provide and brought prosperity to his uncle. Think about that. He still did the right things in all those situations. And that's one of the things I'm trying to instill in my kids right now. And i got a couple of daughters who work in the food service industry. And you all know that's a difficult industry right now, you know. Sometimes the service can be a, a little bit lacking sometimes. And I can't imagine being a restaurant owner because people are changing jobs all the time. And my girls do that. I'm trying to get them to see, well, yeah, you don't understand. My boss is a jerk and they don't give me enough hours. I understand that. But when you're a follower of Christ, because somebody's a jerk, Jesus said, well, be a jerk back to them because that helps, right? Be an irresponsible worker because that really helps the situation, right? No, you do the right thing for the right reasons, and you still try to reflect who God is because you're a follower of Jesus. And maybe your boss knows that. Maybe the other co-workers know that. And if you say, well, I'm not going to put in two weeks' notice because they were a jerk, or he's been treating bad, so I'm just going to leave. No, you do the right thing. And it seems that Jacob was doing the right thing, even though his uncle had not been right to him. And we can bring, <clears throat> we can bring honor to God by doing the right thing, even when our employer or maybe some of the people we work with are being deceptive or unreasonable. So Jacob finally re leaves for obvious reasons, and that obvious reason was, the main reason was, is that God told him to leave. Yeah, it was a terrible situation for 20 years, but now he's going to leave because God told him. Jacob left ultimately out of obedience to what God had told him to do. So when we make moves in our career or in our work, have we really heard a word from God to do what we're getting ready to do next? Have we really heard that from God? Or is it just based on our feelings and the situation I'm dealing with, I just can't take it anymore? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I'm certainly not suggesting here that until we hear an audible voice from God or see a burning bush, we shouldn't leave. That's not what I'm saying because that always doesn't happen. But do we really take our current 
work situation to God on a regular basis and say, God, you know what's going on at my work. You know this boss is difficult. You know this employee is difficult. And how should I handle this? I feel like I want to leave, but I feel like you've got me here for a reason. So, so what should I do? And so we go to God with that. Maybe we look in Scripture, like reading about Jacob or other people and their situations in the Bible. Have we considered maybe consulting a Christian friend who's also a follower of Jesus or a colleague who's been through this before and say, what do you think? Should I leave or should I stay? What should I do? And that's a hard thing to navigate in our workplace because if it is in fact a form of worship, we ought to really be careful about that. And how we navigate situations in our workplace are a form of worship, every part of it. The quality of our work says something about how we worship God. Our motivation for work says something about how we worship God. Our responses to co-workers and to situations give an insight into our relationship with God. And God is either honored or dishonored by what we do. Now, that doesn't mean there's going to be times in my work you know, life that I'm going to do something to make somebody mad at work, or I'm going to do something and lose my temper. But as a Christ follower, I should be able to go back to someone and say, hey, you know the other day when I said, or when this happened, I just want to apologize. I shouldn't have talked to you that way. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. And I want to apologize. That goes a long way, doesn't it, to pointing people that, yeah, you're a Christ follower, but you're not perfect, but you're at least going back and asking for that forgiveness. And that's a form of worship like we do every week when we come and remember Christ as we come to take communion together. The Apostle Paul in his letter in the first century to some Christians at uh, Coloss, those Colossians that he wrote to, he says this, he's talking to them about dynamics and all the relationships you have with husbands and wives and children. And then he gets into the workforce, but he actually says slaves, and we're going to look at um, verse 22 of chapter 3, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's parents' room. He was pretty OCD about work and doing things perfectionist-wise. was to, but as Paul's talking about, you might say, well, wait a minute, Paul's condoning slavery here. Well, no, Paul's not condoning slavery. He just recognizes that the people he's talking to, some of them are slaves, and some of them have become Christ followers, and they have to make a decision about how they're going to view their slavery. And I think it was a reality in the first century that many actually subjected themselves to servanthood or to slavery. And it seems to have been a little different in that first century in a lot of cases than it was in our 18th or 19th century things that we think about when someone was captured and forced into slavery. So think about Paul's words to us today. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Did we really think about that wherever it is? And I want to say to some of y'all that are maybe starting your first job, some of you teenagers, that can be a hard thing. Yeah, well, you, don't, you just don't know this guy. You know, I'm working for minimum wage, and this guy doesn't care about me. No, you're not really working for him, are you? Or her. You're working for the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. Jesus is my boss and Jesus is your boss when we go out every day. We ultimately are working for him and honor and worship him. We honor and worship him through how we do our work. So do we really believe that and do we really work like that? When we go to work every morning, do we really think about, I'm worshiping God by the way I do my work today. 
Everything I do is, a, is an offering to God. And that's kind of a hard concept. And that motivation and should be the mindset, but it can really transform how we work, but it can also transform your workplace. And some of you may say, oh, that, you know, I, I know that's a good idea, and I, but you just you have no idea the people I work with. You have no idea my workforce. But I just read a couple of stories this week that really inspired me. And I'll be honest, a couple of these stories I do that, we learn. He asked God to do something significant in his life. In a small, darkened room in the back of one of New York City's lesser churches, he prayed alone, and he basically prayed this. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with my work and my life? And he was a man who was approaching midlife. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have a family. It was all about his work, and he had a lot of financial means. So he decided to reject the success syndrome that drove most of the city's businessmen and bankers that he worked around. And God used this businessman to turn New York City's commercial empire on its head in the next few years. He began a businessman's prayer meeting on September 23, 1857. The meetings began slowly, but within a few months, 20 noonday meetings began convening daily throughout the city. And the New York papers, the New York Tribune, and the New York Herald issues these articles of, there's a revival going on in our city because of these meetings. It had become the city's biggest news, and now a full-fledged revival was taking place not only in New York, but it started to expand. By the spring of 1858, 2,000 met daily in Chicago's Metropolitan Theater, and in Philadelphia, the meetings mushroomed into a four-month-long tent meeting. Meetings were held in Baltimore, Washington, Cincinnati, Chicago, New Orleans, and Mobile. Thousands met to pray because no, because this one man stepped out and said, God, what do you want me to do? It was unique because the movement was led by businessmen, not by preachers, not by a church, but by businessmen, a group long considered the least prone to any form of evangelism, and it had started on Wall Street, the most unlikely of all places to begin. And I go, that happened? It really did happen. God was a part of that. This man was a part of that because he believed and he acted towards it. This next one's a fascinating story. Ed Silvaso, the author of Anointed for Business, tells a story of a Filipino businessman who owned a hotel chain. God saved him and brought him to um, uh, a life in Christ. He decided he's going to give his life over to Christ, and he knew that meant transformation. And it led to a major transformation in the way he um, led his hotel business. He owned a 1,600-room hotel in three buildings, and the hotel became a haven for prostitution with rooms being used as many as five times a day. The 2,000 employees had a primary clientele of prostitutes. There were more than 300 prostitutes who were in and out of that hotel on a daily basis. Can you imagine? So one of Silvaso's associates shared with the owner a formula for winning the loss. He was a new Christian. He goes, what can we do? I know that God has transformed my life, but how do I transform my business? If all this is going on, how can I be a Christian business owner with all this going on? And so he says, this is what you need to do. He, showed, uh, he gave him this formula, and he heard this man's formula, and he went out and hired 40 pastors to come work in the hotel. And he says, I want you to do this. Speak peace to the wolves. You can imagine who the wolves are. Bless those who curse you. Eat and drink with the sinners and become their friends. And then number three, pray for them and their needs. And these were the strict orders that these 40 pastors were to try to work in this environment. 
And they were not to share the gospel message until they had done those three things for two years in this place. But the net result of following these rules that all 2,000 employees came to Christ and they got saved. And the, the hotel was upgraded to an executive level, which removed the prostitution because the rates became so high they couldn't afford to come in and do their prostitution there. And then they added a chapel, which was, had a 24-7 prayer for anyone dialing 7 on the telephone. And two years later, 10,000 guests had become Christians on that property. Now, you got to be honest with me. When you first hear that, you go, no way. Seriously? I thought, there's no way. All 2,000 people became Christians. You got rid of the prostitution. 10,000 people. But we limit God, don't we? It's like when Jesus was talking to his disciples and said, if you have faith of a mustard seed, you can uproot this tree and it can be planted in the ocean. And what did the, what did the disciples say? That's what I want to say to God. Increase my faith, Lord. Increase my faith. And so I think he's saying that to us today in your school, in your workplace. You think, oh, that, that might have happened to that guy, but that wouldn't happen at my workplace. And God needs to increase our faith that he can do those things if we really believe that. Another interesting story for you sports fans is, and you may remember this from last year during the Masters Tournament, Scotty Scheffler was a 25-year-old who was beginning his third season on the PGA Tour. He was ranked 15th in the world, but he hadn't won a major yet. And on Sunday, April the 10th, 2022, he won the Masters. Major accomplishment at such a young age. But in his press conference after his victory, wearing his new green jacket, some of y'all probably remember this, this is what he said. He said, the reason why I play golf is I'm trying to glorify God and all that he's done in my life. So for me, my identity isn't a golf score. Like my wife Meredith told me this morning, if you win this golf tournament today, if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, I'm still going to love you. You're still going to be the same person. Jesus loves you and nothing changes. He says this, and it's always funny the the sports reporters kind of like, they don't know what to do with that, right? Like, let's just move along to another question really quick. So back on the 12th green when you, you know, all that kind of stuff. But he says, all I'm trying to do is glorify God, and that's why I'm here, and that's why I'm in this position. At 25, he recognized God had him in a position and gave him that talent to hit a golf ball, but he was able to worship God through what he was doing. And he acknowledged that even in his victory. And I think he has a pretty good wife, too, that would kind of set him straight on that, right? You know, that's good. Those kind of things may, again, not seem realistic to us. And we may question or think there's a limit to what God can do. But again, I say increase our faith. Do something in my life, Lord, that shows me that you can do these things. My, my primary motivation in my work should not be about pleasing myself, making myself look good, or even pleasing others. Yes, that's a part of customer service I know that a lot of us are a part of, but it's really about bringing honor to God in the form of worship. And that is possible, but we have to believe that when we get up every morning and go to work, that God has us where we are for a reason, and he's going to do something if we will really seek him and allow him to work through us. So I want to give you that motivation this morning. And as we always do um, at the close of a sermon, I like to give an opportunity for maybe somebody here today. And that whole work and worship thing, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you may go, oh, that's, that's a lot. 
But it starts with surrendering your life to Christ. And Christ takes every aspect of our life. And He doesn't expect us, as soon as we get pulled up from baptism, to everything totally be changed. But He does expect us to be on that journey with Him to to change every aspect of our life, especially our work, because that's such a huge part of what we do in our lives. And so he can do that. I know of one that will be coming this morning. I'm very excited about that. But there may be others who have a decision to make this morning. So we're going to offer that invitation this morning. If you need to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior and, and surrender your life to him, we're going to offer that invitation. If you're looking for a church home, we offer that. We're not a perfect church by any means, but we are committed to God's word and being on that journey with Christ in every aspect of our life. And uh, while we're preparing uh, our hearts uh, for that, we're going to take communion. It's something we do each week during this time right after the sermon. If you're a visitor with us today, we invite you to partake. There'll be some folks that'll pass out the, uh, the little piece of bread and the cup, and you can just take that and hold it and take it when you're ready. But we invite you to be a part of that. You don't have to be a member of our church, but we do this every week to remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us that forgives our sins and allows us to have relationship with Christ here and now, but also eternity with Him. So we're going to do that in just a little bit. But I'm going to ask you, I'm gonna ask the band to come up. I know they're going to lead us in a song, and we're going to uh, reflect as we get ready to prayer, prepare our hearts um, for communion. So I'm going to ask you all to stand. The band's going to lead us in song. But if you have a decision this morning, I'm going to ask you to come up at this time. So let's stand together. <clears throat>